So I guess anyone can submit Urban Dictionary lyrics, but the, this man has a lot of very racist things to say about gypsies, and his username is I Hate Pikes. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Here she comes. Welcome to We Both Podcast Together, a show about the hazards of loving the Decemberists. I'm your host, Pete Wissinger. And I am your co-host, Matt Esper. Um, I think that you're my assistant host. <laughs> oh, oh, is that how it's going to be? <laughs> that might be how it's going to be. All right. Fair enough. Uh, and and today is uh, is, is Wait, our you first. Didn't say your name. Yeah, I did. I don't think you did. All right. I'll say it again. This is the second time I'm saying it, and everyone listening will know that it's the second time, but... <laughs> There's no audio proof that you have said your name. I'm still Matt Esner. Okay, good. And uh, this is this is, this is is episode one, uh, our first yeah. official episode. Only the true fans listen to episode zero. Right. Uh, and today we're covering uh, five songs, the first EP released by the band The Decemberists. Correct. We've got a lot of stuff to say about this very small collection of songs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, should we should we maybe say what what this specifically this podcast is about? For those that skipped episode zero, right? So we both podcast together is a chronological survey of the music of the Decemberists and our relationship to that band, with a lot of analysis and sharing of feelings and yeah. And this is our, this is our first episode officially. Right. There is a, a prequel episode that you can search really hard to find if you're inclined. Uh, so, so I, I guess let's just dive right into it. Yeah. I think it'd be a good uh, opportunity since this, we're talking about their first recording to start with a little bit of band history. So, uh, the history of the Decemberists, of course, has to start with its front man, Colin Malloy. So do you know what band was Colin Malloy fronting before the Decemberists? Uh, I, I do know that. Uh, it's the it's the band Tarkio uh, out of Missoula, Montana. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. So Tarkio was basically Colin Malloy's college band. They put out a couple of self-released albums and EPs. And uh, he hung around with them a little bit after he graduated. Do you know what Colin Malloy's degree was in from Missoula, Montana? Uh, I believe it was creative writing. It was. Wow. So you just knew that. I actually did research. So that's pretty impressive. So I don't know if you know this, but uh, University of Montana is kind of known for their creative writing program. I did not know that. Yeah, it's kind of their it's kind of their thing. So, yeah, Tarkio was sort of I think it'd be fair to call Tarkio an alt country band. So they were together from 1997 to 1999. Uh, and then after graduating from college, Malloy tried to make it as a rock star in rural Montana and found that pretty difficult. I don't understand why. I know. And uh, decided to leave to pursue a more active music scene. So if you're thinking Pacific Northwest, what city do you think of as a music scene hub? What's the, I mean... Seattle, right? Early. Right. You exactly. You would think Seattle. But uh, he said that the music scene in Seattle was not necessarily speaking to him. You got to figure 1990s Seattle was a lot of grunge, probably not Mr. Malloy's cup of tea. So he moved to Portland, Oregon, 
And uh, while he was there, he kind of started over and he has told stories about playing shows in empty bars where he was literally only playing to the bartender. And then when the bartender would leave the room, he was literally playing to an empty room. But this gave him the opportunity to sort of reinvent himself as a musician because he might as well entertain himself if no one's paying attention to what he's doing. And that's when he started kind of switching up his style. So who do you think the first member of the band that he met was? I would guess it's either Jenny Connolly or Nate Query. So this is really interesting because I read a bunch of interviews and I watched an interview with him and he talked about meeting Chris Funk early on because Chris Funk worked for a like a, a booking, a talent booking office. And Chris Funk said that he watched one of Colin Malloy's shows when he arrived in Portland and had listened to Tarkio. Wow. I mean, that's kind of impressive that Tarkio would have made it all the way to the to the other coast. Right, because you kind of imagine like college band from college town is going to have trouble breaking out of that scene. I mean, the internet was a thing back then, but not like, I don't, I don't know. I guess, I guess Napster was around then, right? Was this, was this Napster days? Sure. But like, I still feel like in the late nineties, you needed to either be a part of a scene or get hooked up with some kind of label because there weren't really the avenues for people to just put themselves out there. It's kind of funny. I kind of remember like, MySpace being the first thing that was like, musicians can now put their own music in people's hands. And I think this is probably like right around MySpace time, right? Uh, I mean, it sounds about right. Did you ever have a MySpace page? I never had a MySpace. Did you? Nah, I think I made one once just to see what it was, but then I just made a blog instead and, and found that much more satisfying. I used to read your blog all the time. That's... I hope it doesn't uh, exist. I mean, I haven't looked for it in a while, but I think it'd be best for the rest of the world if it if it disappeared. I had multiple forever. blogs, uh, and I think when when I started teaching, I went back and deleted a bunch of them. I should do that if if it exists. I should find it and delete it. I don't think I ever like <laughs> wrote anything like. I mean, it's just like probably embarrassing, like early twenties dude stuff. Yeah. Dudes in their early 20s are embarrassing. Guess who was in their early 20s at this time? Colin Malloy. Oh, oh that is a great segue. <laughs> How about that transition? Oh, my God. So um, I listened to an interview with Colin Malloy that he did for their label that they had for their first three albums, Kill Rockstars. And when Picaresque came out, there was like a they put out like a DVD called like Practical Handbook to the Decemberist, which was a concert DVD. And there was a, a short documentary on that. Um, and he talked about his drummer, Ezra Holbrook, introducing him to Nate Query. Wow. So I was way like Nate Query seems that he was the last person in the Decemberists that he met. Well, the one thing that I have found common throughout all of these is that Nate was friends with Jenny Conley and introduced Colin to Jenny. OK. So apparently Colin had a drummer and he was looking for someone to play upright bass. And got Nate there. And then they did a show that Jenny went to because Nate invited her to the show. And then Nate was like, hey, Colin, Jenny plays accordion. And, and Colin was like, oh, accordion. Cool. And then Colin, Jenny and Nate, <laughs> their first project they did together was that they scored a silent movie. 
This seems like a Portlandia sketch. Does it? I mean, so they got together and scored some silent movie that was some kind of around the world in 80 days type movie. And then it was really out of that that they became the Decemberists. Wow. I mean, that that seems about right for for the Decemberists. Uh, I would expect nothing less twee than that. that and Chris of... Funk was not a full fledged member of the band until after Castaways and Cutouts. But he plays on both five songs and Castaways, but was more of just like someone they called in to play a bunch of random instruments. Um, so, yeah, we should also so the other permanent member of the band at the time was the drummer, Ezra Holbrook. Um, who was only a drummer for the band for this EP and their first full-length album. So maybe we should talk about the the band name, the Decemberists. Yeah. Were you were you familiar with the Decemberists revolution before you had heard of the band? Only from Googling the band is why I know about that revolution. Uh, we should mention, though, that in, in your non-Decemberist podcast hosting life, you are a history teacher. That is true, but failed... 19th century coups uh, don't typically make it into high school surveys of world history. What are you doing to change that? Uh, I'm not teaching world history anymore. Okay, so yeah. so, you see, so you've given up. You've given up the cause. Well, also, I'm my expertise is, is medievalist. So 19th century is more like current events than history to me. That's fair. Uh, but yeah, so there was a Decemberist revolution, which was a attempted overthrowing of the czar which failed, and the Decemberists were then sent off to Siberia, and there were Decemberist uh, communities in Siberia after that. So they take their name from a, a failed Russian coup. Yes, although apparently Colin also said in an interview I read that he is also just attracted to the drama of the month of December and says that the coldest month of the year reminds him of the sort of marginalized characters who exist on the outskirts that are often the subjects of his stories. But that feels kind of like a stretch to me. It it sounds like maybe he found a cool name in a history book and then was like, I better have something better that, to, <laughs> to tell interviewers whenever they come a-knocking. So the recording of five songs... Um, they needed $400 to pay for the, the two days they needed for recording. So apparently the day before they're supposed to record, they played in the lobby of a hotel in Portland to make 400 bucks. And they played for three hours and made 400 bucks so they could then go and record in a studio. Was it like just busking or do you think the hotel paid them some money? That's a great question. You would think that hotels would not just let groups of people sit in the halls and play music for money. Well, maybe they're all fans of the silent film that they scored. That's like there's a bunch <laughs> of could be. silent film could heads be. there that were like, oh, it's these guys. And so then they just. So uh, I guess this uh, recording was essentially their demo reel. This was something for them to probably use to have something to sell at shows, maybe to give to labels, things like that. So. This came out in 2001, self-released. Did it come out before or after 9-11? Ooh, that is a great question. It, it sounds, it sounds uh, post 9-11 to you, me. You think it sounds like, it sounds it's, like a recording made by people who had witnessed the terrors I of 9-11? I do think so. 
I think that the 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 mood is generally, I would say, a, a post nine eleven world yeah. that we live in today. Yeah, um, they end up joining a record label after this called Hush, and Hush put out Castaways and Cutouts and re-released this album uh, with a tacked-on sixth song. Right, because it's called Five Songs, but if you you know find it on Spotify or if you get a a physical release uh it's gonna have six songs anything else you want to say before we jump into the track by track uh no i think let's let's do it i think uh i think that's like that's a lot of good information uh first track is oceanside Sweet so the accordion is right up there right up front this first song it's like that whole kind of thing that songs like to do where it starts with just like lyrics and then the music pops in when i think of songs that do stuff like that i'm thinking like uh somebody once told right you know it's one of that one of those kinds of things i was wondering how long it would take you to turn <laughs> this into a smash mouth uh fan cast <laughs> we're already there and yeah already there. episode one it's we've we've lost track and it's first song. this is what you've been this is what you've been playing the whole time i knew it like, i meant to punk you <laughs> and trick you into making a smash mouth podcast trojan horse for Smash Mouth the whole time. All the stuff I just said about the band is totally made up and is actually all facts about Smash Mouth. No! Anyway. So yeah, I definitely, I don't know if it's the lyrics, but I definitely do get a, a sort of sea shanty vibe from this song. Yeah, it's got a kind of laid back, just sitting on a beach or a, a pier watching the tide roll in and out. And I would say lyrically, this is kind of an introduction to the Decemberists style of sort of like um morbid love songs yeah also i think it's very much a statement for Colin malloy that this is the kind of songwriter i am that the fourth line of his first release has i guess i'm something of a ne'er-do-well yeah that's not the kind of uh lyric you're gonna find in a, in a backstreet boy song no that's definitely a, a creative writing degree kind of lyric yeah so what do you think is going on in this I don't know, like, so here's here's my thing, and, and this this is probably going to be uh, a problem that you're going to have to work around uh, through the recording of this podcast. I don't actually listen to lyrics that that strongly. I mean, well, like, I, do you, do I you tend to zone out. up while we're talking? <laughs> no, why would I do that? <laughs> okay, okay, so I'll read you lyrics then, okay? So it's about a girl named Annabelle, right? Yeah. And he's saying he wants to coax her oceanside, coax her overboard beneath the shores... So is this song being sung by a merman? Oh. Or perhaps a mer-lesbian? Or what are they, kelpie? Isn't that a thing? Like the things that, the seals that turn into men? Oh God, I don't know anything about that. I think that's a thing. There's like, there's some sort of sea monster that turns into a, it's a this seal obviously, Or maybe it is just the ocean itself, but like it is something associated with the ocean that is in love with this girl and essentially wants her to drown so they can be together. That sounds like a December song. Okay, so here's a, here's a line that I wasn't sure about what it means. It's, at rising tide, you're looking fresher than a July bride. We're picking up what our mothers always stigmatized. The field is right for, ripe for reaping. I mean, I assume it's anal, right? Is that what they're talking about? <laughs> is that, that's the field? I'm guessing that, that, that's what the mother always stigmatized. Do you think that's do you think that's in the in the world of this song? The mom was like, anal's bad, guys. Just well, stay actually, away from it. another thing about the Decemberists is sort of like 
slutty older women is kind of a thing in their lyrics. That is an interesting topic that I'm looking forward to exploring with you. <laughs> I mean, I can just tell my think of at least four songs that that would be included in. All right. I'm, I'm excited to complete this list with you. I'm excited to tell you the lyrics of the music you've been listening to for a long time. I just have a very short attention span. Like, I know, I, I generally know, like, the first first few lyrics, and I'll know the chorus. But my thing is the the, you know... Paying attention to the lyrics only leads to interpretation and criticism. Uh, and, and it is my opinion that the artists uh, are the final authority on the interpretation of the music. So it's really not my place to interpret what they're trying to say. Well, here's what I'll say. I think that all the songs in this album have pretty um, clear cut, not necessarily like overly vague metaphorical lyrics, which I think is true of their lyrics in general, except for when, There'll be one later on that I'll be like, I have no freaking idea what's going on in this song. Fair enough. All right, well, pressing on. Uh, track number two, Shiny. I get the impression that Shiny is the fan favorite on this album. What gives you that impression? Well, first of all, Colin Malloy's Instagram handle is a reference to this song. Interesting. Which is Dull and Witless Boy. And I just feel like this song got a decent amount of play live and the crowd really seemed to be into it when they would play it. Um, but I really like this song. I I do, too. Honestly, I like the first one as well. So, I mean, so far, two for two. Uh, sure. With this with this EP. All right. So I know you don't pay attention to the lyrics. <laughs> Any idea what this song's about? I know there's something about lying and keeping your eyes shiny. So I think yes. someone someone is lying and being yes. so good at it that they're they're not even like there's no tell. There's no tell about how lying, how good they are. At yeah. Lying. So I get the impression that this song is about someone who falls in love with a carny. Is the carny, is that is, is that a textual interpretation or are you bringing that baggage? Well, in with it calls you? her a, a tawny gypsy gal. I don't think all gypsies are carnies. Um, OK, so first of all, I had to do some some dictionary work. Do you know what tawny means? Uh, you know, if I had to guess Gotta guess it means like lithe and like sort of uh you know leathery maybe. Uh it's an orange brown color. Okay. No, that I should have known that. That's on so me. So this is a, a jaundiced carny. Le- no, I mean like <laughs> or probably is that just like, a gypsy. Probably That's like just that gypsy look. Tan. Like the tan and, and sort of you know, sun kissed color of of a person who travels not necessarily setting up carnival attractions, but possibly setting up carnival attractions. So the impression I get here is that this man falls in love with this carny, this gypsy girl, and she lies to him and swindles him, but he's still in love with her. Wow. That's kind of what I get out of this. Because there's a lot of references to, like, bumper cars, roller coaster. You know, it's definitely we're at a carnival. All right. There's also a lyric I had to kind of look up. Uh, and, and, you know, they have a decent amount of songs about sex. And this song, I think, is also in that category. You know, it says, we were coyly caught alone, all fumbling with your blouse. Yeah. I mean, Malloy, he does not shy away from sex, consensual or not, in his lyrics. Right. I mean, because first song was about anal. This one's about <laughs> some sort of carnival uh, sexual encounter between a, yeah. an orange woman and someone else. Um, there's a, also a line in here uh, where it says... Uh, in the killing jar, you and me, 
at war at arms all falling in embrace do you know what a killing jar is i have a guess i have a guess it has something to do with insects yeah it's what you catch a bug and put it in a jar and it dies yeah so that's what he's got this thing where it says you know i was sullied by a dream in a killing jar you and me were at arms so I get the idea that he that she's like got him in a she's like trapped him basically metaphorically uh, at least or she's used her gypsy magics to shrink him down <laughs> and put we him in just a do drug. Borat references for the rest of the episode. <laughs> I don't have a problem with gypsies. I'm going to go on record right now and saying <laughs> I'm pro gypsy, very pro gypsy. I don't use the word gypsy is a, I, I, I accidentally just said it, but um it's a slur. No, gypsy is not a slur. It is for the Romani people. Is it? That's offensive, Matt. No, saying say, no, saying gypped. That's a slur. Say, say, like that's like that's like saying you got Jude. Wow. But it's not. You're gonna have to. We're gonna have to bleep all these. <laughs> saying <laughs> Jew isn't a bad. Isn't that's not a slur. Jew, Jew isn't a slur. Right, here, here we go. I've got a. I've got a, a New York Times article here. Right. Term of affection. Ethnic slur. Theater union decides that gypsy must go. Whoa. Are they talking? But no, they're talking about the play. It's a theater union. They're talking about the play Gypsy. I got a urban dictionary here. Yes, please do. That's going to be the final, the final authority. on Uh, this. So according to urban dictionary, while normally considered a racial slur in the U S it refers to person of the Romani heritage. Wow. There's just like a real definition. So wait, it's uh, only a racial in the in the United States. It's not a racial slur. <laughs> we can say it because it's America. That's amazing. Because I feel like normally it goes the other way. Like I feel like we yeah. are we work harder to make slurs than most people. I think it's because we don't know enough about the Romani to stereotype them. We're good at racial stereotypes. We just don't know enough about the Romani. I'm learning so much in this podcast so far. I'm learning the words to songs that I've been singing along to for literally <laughs> almost almost two decades. And I'm learning that Gypsy is a slur. All right, uh, let's move on. Track three. My mother was a Chinese trapeze artist. Do you have any trivia to give me for this song? It's funny that you mentioned that. Uh, I, <laughs> I do have some Because I do if you don't. But <laughs> This was originally recorded uh, by Colin's uh, previous band, Tarkio. Uh, yes. And a lot more sort of... Uh, Tarkia was more of a, an alt-country kind of band, so basically everything you hear in this song where there's an accordion uh, would be replaced by violin or pedal steel, I think. So this was on Tarkio's 1999 EP, Sea Songs for Landlocked Sailors. Uh, according to Colin Malloy, this song was just written to make his girlfriend laugh uh, and was not really something he superintended... Uh, to be a big thing. It was apparently inspired by an awful road trip he went on with his family and his desire to have a more interesting story to tell about his family. I would say this is maybe lyrically the most Decemberist-y song on this album. I think that's that's fair. Although just, just by virtue of the fact that Oceanside has sort of a watery motif, I feel like that that might put it in contention. That's fair. The Decembers have a lot um, of songs about water, is what I'm getting at. But this is, I feel like, Colin Malloy really kind of, like, letting loose lyrically. Um, and where he's just like, you know what? I'm going to 
just throw a bunch of weird references in here and be sort of like goofy and funny with how ridiculous my lyrics are because it is kind of a funny song do you th- you think it's funny yeah you don't think it's funny i know there's parts where they're talking about smuggling bombs for the underground and and pre-war paris look i get this his sister it says was found by a communist who deserted his ranks to follow his dreams to start a punk rock band in south carolina what's funny about following your dreams pete <laughs> i mean nothing uh or the fact that he became a sailor because he was bet away in a high stakes game of canasta and that now he's a pretty good sailor but all he wants is to be landlocked and work in a bakery again just following his dreams i don't know why you think it's so funny to uh mock other people's dreams pete matt have you ever played canasta I think so. Is Canasta one that's like three games of Rummy all on top of each other? I've never played Canasta. I don't know. So it says here, uh, <laughs> this is the kind of backstory Kamali wish he had. My parents had me to the disgust of the prostitutes on the bed of a brothel. Okay. Hey, that's something. Uh, there's probably pound for pound more prostitutes in December songs than, than I would say most other artists. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean... And it's it's non-judgmental about the prostitutes, I would say. No, I would say the December is a very like sex works positive. Musically, this song is pretty stripped down compared to the other ones. Also, there's pedal steel in this as well. So there is. I was there just is. talking out of my ass earlier when I said that there's more pedal steel in the Tarkio version. Yeah, there's a lot. In I mean, that's why Mr. Funk is in the set. Do you think? Chris's last name was in any way an inspiration for him to become a musician. Like if his last um, name would have been Doctor, do you think he still would have Or or is it a pseudonym? That's pretty ballsy. Like if you're going to be a musician and Well, have you ever met someone whose last name is actually Funk? I I've been in a parking lot with Chris. Does that count? Um no, I don't think that does. Anyway, I love this song. I think it's funny. It's like NPR funny. It's not like ha ha funny. <laughs> Whoa, okay, that's like the faintest of praise for humor. <laughs> this, like, would be pretty great if they played it on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, spot on. <laughs> I think Jonathan Colton could have written this song. <laughs> 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 um, we're going to get a lot of hate mail. Uh, track four, Angel Won't You Call Me. This is kind of like their jaunty country song on this album. This might be my favorite Decemberist song. Wow. I was going to say it's one of the more forgettable songs on five songs. It is by far my favorite December song to play on guitar. Not that I'm like a good oh, guitar yeah. player. I love that little, but that it's, little it's roll so, on the guitar is great. It's so much fun to play. Um, yeah, this kind of feels like it almost could be a bluegrass song. Sure. I think this is maybe the most Americana song on this album. Yeah, maybe that's why it, it resonates with me. Because, you know me, I'm a alt country Americana kind of guy. But there's here's uh, how proud do you think Colin Malloy was when he came up with the rhyme? Here I am in corduroy. Catch it in your Polaroid. <laughs> I think uh, like the the town of Portland gathered around him and hoisted him upon their shoulders. <laughs> I, think, I think they might have. And, and celebrated the most like indie rock circa 2000 yes. thing ever composed. Also, you might like this song because this lyrically 
not much going on here. You know, it's just it's a pretty straightforward, like kind of unrequited love song. I guess I don't understand this, though. I fled at the face of my arrival when I felt his breath on the back of my neck. Would that be like being afraid to talk to this person? No, I I think like it's it's a rival for the attentions of the of the eponymous angel. Right. I think look at me doing a lyrical interpretation even though I said I wouldn't. But I think it's about uh, it's about a guy who has a crush on a girl and the girl has a significant other or at least another person that's uh, vying for her attention. And, uh, you know, the the protagonist of the song uh, is is either too afraid or I don't know, can't uh, can't get, get enough courage to to best his rival. You know, on the original five songs, this would have been the most rockin' song this on is, the collection. This is a this is a single, man. This is this is what you you pump out. But I would say that the sixth added song rocks a little harder. Spoiler alert. Okay, so I don't mind. Track five. The slowest track on the album and lyrically completely bewildering. Uh, my wife told me today that this is her favorite song on this and one of her favorite Decemberist songs. I I like this song a lot. But this one lyrically is really bizarre. I'm, I'm going to read some of the lyrics to you, okay? Hit me. Because there's three um, verses that kind of tell three different stories. So here's the first song. Truly with his thorn in your side and you don't know why, Julie tips her dips her toe in the tide and you don't know why no she don't know why she got all dolled up for a suicide and when the stage lights dimmed on the fading scrim it was morning before the cheering died is it too late to tell you that i don't mind what is it about a suicide or is it about an actress i feel it's probably about like a stage play you think the actress yeah i mean i think so i think it's maybe like in reference to someone who's who's a performer. So what's the narrator saying when he says he doesn't mind? Just he's OK with it. OK, well, the next one is just total nonsense. So I'm going to skip that one. But here's the last one. I, I want to hear how you would interpret this one. All right. Here's you with your mom on your back going into the woods. She's so proud that you're staying on track like a good son should. But you don't know why you got all choked up when you said goodbye and you can still hear her still when the nights are still all crying out for calamine. Uh, you know, he this guy went on a nature hike with his mom. She's a little <laughs> I think overbearing. He murdered his mom. She's a little overbearing. Uh, but, you know, she's proud of him. Uh, he's getting out there, probably rolling in some poison ivy, which is why there's calamine <laughs> with involved. the calamine. Yeah. It seems like my thought is she has a terrible disease and he took her out in the woods and left her there. That's pretty dark. It sounds like a ghost story, right? Because it's like he can still in the still night hear her. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can see that interpretation. So that would be their original demo. So if you were to be a record label and someone dropped these five songs on your table, what impression does this collection of songs leave you about this band? Okay, well... You know, the Twin Towers have both fallen. So I'm, that's fresh I mean, in my mind. Fresh in my mind there. Still what trying do to the people that. need to get over this national What's, tragedy? What is the bomb that's going to repair the damage <laughs> left in our hearts? The two towers yeah. shaped hole. 
Right. And I'm thinking, you know, uh, King George and his lazy eye. Right. Absolutely. And which is why this was the number one album of 2000. Oh, actually, maybe I don't mind is a song about 9-11. Gollum <laughs> <laughs> is saying he doesn't mind. Dude, what is it? Something about jet fighters? Isn't that? I mean, yeah, fighter jets, fighter TV sets jets. and fighter jets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a layer here. Actually, maybe we should go back to the first track and reanalyze all of these with this in mind. To be fair, I always look at every piece of art through the lens of 9 Yeah, that's fair. Anyway, what, what, I think the impression I get of this band after hearing these five songs is like, uh, here's a band who wants to do some... They, they've got pop sensibilities, but don't want to sound like a pop band. Um, and lyrically, they're kind of quirky but you know it's going to be great for that college crowd yeah yeah i definitely get a college rock vibe from this well i barely get a rock vibe from this but i I think it's got that it's got that rock i suppose but i think i think really if i was an exec someone dropped this on my desk my thought would be Needs one more song. I think you might be right. I'm really sorry, Steven, but your bicycle's been stolen. I was so the sixth song here apparently was left on his friend Steven's answering machine. That this was an actual song written as an apology for losing his friend's bike. But yeah, so this song would probably be actually the earliest written song on this album before my mother was a Chinese trapeze artist well because this you would think well okay maybe around the same time but it's he's still in Montana right right but like this song is this the only song on the album to use electric guitar I don't know I would have to listen more closely yeah anyway it's got more of kind of like that kind of rocky kind of thing going on right and it's funny yeah I mean Unlike the other song that you said was funny, this song actually has some some light moments in it. Not just people people trying to make their lives better and following their aspirations. <laughs> I think my favorite line in this is that uh, rudely abused on some Hesher's joyride. Yeah. Also, I like to think the image of him coming out of the grocery store, going to the bike, and there's a bored old dog leashed up. Now, here's the question. Did the bicycle thief leave their dog and steal the bike? Or do you think it was some sort of like some sort of rudimentary barter, some sort of one sided barter arrangement? Yeah. But yeah, this song's fun. I've heard him play it live still like it's he just recently played it at his, in his latest Instagram session. Uh, Yeah, it's a good song. It is good. And like, you know, to include something goofy like this really does show you that this is a band with a sense of humor. Yeah, for sure. A band that doesn't take their grandioseness too seriously. And I think they continue to show that sense of humor, at least somewhat on all of their albums. Agreed. All right. So that's that's five songs. All all six songs. Pretty good, I would say. Yeah. What would you say is your number one? And what would you say is your least favorite? Angel Won't You Call Me is by far my number one. That's the one I listen to the most. And then as much as I love uh, My Mother Was a Trapeze Artist, that's probably my least favorite. It's a squeaker on this one. There's a lot of wow. There's a lot of really close ones, but I would say that was in contention for my number one. But I think my number one is probably Shiny. Shiny is great. And my bottom pick would probably be I Don't Mind. Just because 
it's a little slow for me i think it's not a it's not a a, a crowd pleaser i don't think i don't think it's gonna get people moving it's not gonna get the dance floor is. filled up can you dance to december songs i mean none of these right i guess you could slow dance to i don't mind i don't know what uh i mean you could probably waltz to angel won't you call me okay i don't think it's the right time signature but you can do something you could headbang to a lot of hazards sure all right well so yeah five five songs great great ep this is going to be a, a recurring segment there's a there's a a music website uh that both pete and i and a lot of other music nerds frequented especially you know in this this period in our lives like the early 2000s called pitchfork pitchfork media it's kind of like the sort of go-to website for music reviews for indie music and some not so indie music i would say there was a time that they were like the taste making media source for the whole scene yeah i mean i think the sort of cliche uh now the sort of joke about pitchfork is that it's very hyper literate kind of snobby uh music criticism do you say that's accurate yeah i mean i remember the onion once did a story that was like pitchfork gives music a seven out of ten <laughs> yeah i mean that's that's basically pitchfork in a nutshell but um you know there was a time when like an unknown band if they got the best new music tag on pitchfork would start selling out shows so yeah they were definitely were tastemakers and they used to like the decemberists they they did and so i think something we're going to do as a recurring segment is we're going to we're going to chart their uh their pitchfork reviews they rank the albums on a numerical scale from one to ten would you care to guess what rating pitchfork gave the five songs ep I'm going to guess a 7.2. It is astonishingly close. It's a 7.3. Wow. that is. <laughs> and it was it was actually this was uh, the re-release that they reviewed. So they reviewed it actually after uh, Castaways and Cutouts came out. So they reviewed it after the first album was released. Um, gave it a 7.3 out of, out of 10. The snarkiest thing about uh, the review is uh, from the reviewer Matt LeMay. The more uptempo shiny fails to develop to a particularly moving refrain, relying too heavily upon the bits of slide guitar worked into a disappointingly formless structure. So Woof. that's the that's the Take pitch that. the pitchfork snark. But generally the the reviewer liked it. Yeah, I mean he gave it a seven point three out of ten. So we've got this this young band here that pulled themselves up by their bootstraps recorded this little EP to try and get some attention and it works. Yeah. And it really is a nice little like taste of the potential that this band has. For sure. I would say this was, I mean, honestly, like we had talked in episode zero about, you know, how to get people into the Decemberists. I feel like this would not be a bad start. If you were going to try to convince someone to like the Decemberists, this is pretty, pretty low threshold for entry here. Yeah, this is entirely inoffensive, I would say. And it's it's got, you know, hints of what is to come. Hints of ambition. For sure. I would say it'd be a combination of Oceanside and My Mother is a Chinese Trapeze Artist, that those songs together sort of formulate what becomes the early Decemberists' sound and identity. And uh, Angel Won't You Call Me is uh, kind of a precursor to their Apology album. Uh, that would come out after their. <laughs> Are you referring to King is Dead? Yeah, that's the one. Do you know that that's their only album to go um, gold? Uh, we'll talk about it 
I have a lot of opinions about that album. I have a friend that I want to get as a guest who only likes that album. So he doesn't he doesn't like the Decemberists, is what you're saying. <laughs> he only likes the album that's for casuals. Well, I mean, I, I, I feel like we've we've given uh, five songs a fair uh, a fair evaluation. I think we give it a good I shake. Think so. I think it's your turn to try doing a, a, a sign off. OK, yeah, we said we were going to we said we were going to try to perfect our sign off. Uh, we never did. I didn't. I certainly didn't do any thought, thought about it until we started recording. That's the first moment I thought about a sign off since the last time. <sighs> OK, this has been We Both Podcast Together. I've been Matt Esner. I've been Pete Wissinger. And until next time. Angel won't you call eight nope oh my god <laughs> i'm really sorry yeah, that was Steven. beautiful i'm, I'm oh, till next yeah. till next time watch out watch out for those tawny gypsy gals till next time remember gypsy is a slur guys gypsy is a slur <laughs> words have meaning and power <laughs> <laughs>